Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, and this is episode 28. And it's another big episode, folks, because this time we will be again looking at three comics, Action Comics number 19, Superman number 3, and Action Comics number 20. And like past episodes where we've had three issues on the docket, this time I brought along a little help. So I am pleased to welcome, as this episode's special guest, another fellow Superman podcaster, Mr. J. David Weeder. Thank you for having me. So how's it going? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. David is host of Superman Forever Radio, which he describes on his site as uh, a stream of consciousness celebration of Superman. And he he formerly did the, what was it called? The SFR Daily Planet. SFR Daily Planet, there you go, where he would round up the news every day and and, uh, put that into a podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your Superman show and how it came about? Um, well, I mean, the show itself right now is going through all the modern era books, which I consider everything post-Infinite Crisis, apparently up to Flashpoint, <laughs> which yes. was quite a shock, <laughs> kind yeah. of a change in plans. But And uh, with that, you know, I try to branch off onto topics, really look at things. Uh, for example, the episode uh, Dark Side and Sons, I look at that weird dynamic with we switch babies, Dark Side has a couple of kids, and just try to <laughs> try to make sense of it. But it may also be, you know, look at Metropolis, the city itself. Just try to explore everything. And I, I do try to look at a Superman and other media. So right now, the show is looking at every episode of Superman the Animated Series from 1996 to, I believe it was 2000, if I'm not incorrect. I've really been enjoying that part of the show. I don't have those episodes on DVD. I have the, uh, the, the three-part pilot on VHS, but I've never gotten around to buying the complete set of the DVDs. So I've, I've enjoyed being able to go through them on your show. Oh, that's probably the funnest part of the show for me to do, because really that's how I start the week off—is just start off with oh, an yeah? episode of that. It's, like that. it's a good way to kick off the week, I think. Yep. And how did you get into comics, specifically Superman? Um, in terms of comics, I—I I, I actually recently asked my parents, you know, who gave me my first comic. I don't know. I've always been into him. I've always had him around. And Superman himself—it came from the, you know, I think originally from Super Friends, right? And then getting more into uh, Bozo the Clown used to have uh, the Filmation, Advent- New Adventures of Superman, Adventures of Superboy, and I got into it that way. I was a little bit more of a Superboy fan for quite a while because okay. hey, he had a dog. Right. <laughs> and then from there it just progressed, and I, I grew as I grew up. I really uh, grew to respect the altruism and the the idea of truth, justice, the American way. So mm-hmm. it it resonated from there. And like you said, you're covering the post Infinite Crisis stuff on your show. Would you say that's your favorite era of the books, or why did not, you specifically choose that era to, to go through? Not not my favorite era. My era favorite eras would be tied between Bronze Age and then the uh, From Crisis to Crisis era. Okay. Um, that one, it came about because the show originally I started, I just wanted to do a general Superman podcast. I was going to cover some news, uh, go back and forth through different eras, do different issues. But when, you know, some of these other Superman podcasts came out, it's like, well, there's a appropriate niche for me. There's right. a place for me. And that's where I started because I could just pick up where Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey will be leaving off when From Crisis to Crisis reaches its its end point. Mm-hmm. And by the and then you know of course all the other Superman podcasts started popping up around that time, so we have almost every era covered, and hopefully there's one that covers the post Flashpoint era. <laughs> I'm sure there will be eventually. Um, and what what would you say is your favorite Superman story? If you could just pick one story, 
Oh, wow. The first one that pops into mind is Action Comics number 775, which was around 2000, 2001, which introduced Manchester Black. The and, what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way? Absolutely. And it, I think it said exactly what needed to be say, said about Superman at that time. I, in terms of the rest of that run, I can't really vouch that much for it, but <laughs> that issue was, you know, it hit, it hit the right tone. Right. Yeah, I remember. I remember reading that uh, when it came out, of course, and I, I liked it a lot then and, and for several months after. I haven't read it recently, so I can't really speak to if it still holds up, you know, uh, almost a decade later, but I really enjoyed it when it came out. Yeah, it was, uh, it, as I said, it said everything that needed to be said, and that's sort of my, uh, to, to borrow Michael Bailey's term, as a Superman apologist, that's my go-to book. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a minicast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. So again, we will be looking at three comics this episode, Action Comics number 19, Superman number 3, and Action Comics number 20. And David's going to handle the synopsis on the first issue, so I'll hand it off to you. Will do. Uh, As I'm seeing here, this was a December 1939 issue, but it was actually released approximately October 31st, 1939, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Now, the credits show just Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, but at this time I know that there were... Many people like Manly Wade Wellman that were contributing to the to the comics at the time. Uh, Paul Cassidy probably had a hand in the art for this issue. Yeah, it looks like it. And uh, I mean, the cover itself it shows Superman ripping what looks to be a cannon off of its base into the air with several planes flying around in the red sky, which has nothing to do with, with what we're going to see in this <laughs> issue. <laughs> but, but they didn't back in this era. Yeah. This is a great cover, though. I mean, you can almost feel the power as he rips that cannon off, and there's explosions in the background. Yeah, it's it's pretty epic, to be honest. And and uh, plus, starting with this cover, Superman takes over the cover of the book. Is it what? Does I mean, we had him in number one. I thought there was a couple between here and there. 
but is it just consistent from here on in that right that's what i mean yeah from yes. from this cover on he's on all the covers good that's no where he more, belongs no more stock filler stuff <laughs> well the uh before the story actually opens you have this odd cartoon ad where a couple of odd looking gentlemen are driving off of a cliff that shows eight thousand feet down and their concern is grabbing these magazines, which includes adventure comics, movie comics, All-American comics, detective comics, and fun comics, which is actually more fun comics. And uh, ask, have you bought your copies of these five magazines? Get them at your neighborhood newsstands. Now, our, our main story opens up with Clark Kent conveniently at the police headquarters when an emergency call for an ambulance comes in because a man has dropped into a stupor at 211 Terrace Avenue. Clark tags along on the ambulance ride, and when they get to 211 Terrace, they find that the tenant is lying dead, covered in, and I quote, purple rotting blotches. And later back that day, back at the Daily Star, Clark is writing up his piece when two men, assumed, assumptively doctors, frantically enter, relieved to find that Clark is alive. Without really filling Clark in on what he what's going on, he submits to a physical examination from the two, but when his patience is pushed to the limit, he demands to know why he's being poked and prodded. The doctor, at least as I mentioned what we assume is a doctor, explains that all of the people who came in contact with the dead man in his purple rotting blotches have died, and Clark is the only one who is still alive. The disease spreads like wildfire through the streets of Metropolis, and people drop dead left and right. There's a lot of people boarding up their doors and windows, quarantining themselves in the wake of the spreading plague, which makes the front page of the Daily Star. Clark is visited at his apartment by a young scientist, Henry Travers, who explains that he has a theory about the gruesome plague. Travers explains that in the Middle Ages, humanity suffered from a purple plague, and this must be another occurrence of the same disease. And there seems to be a rare volume at the library detailing the disease and ways to combat it, and Travers invites Clark to join him in taking a look at it. When they get to the library, the book in question is actually checked out, but fortunately the book's reader, a feeble old man in a wheelchair, returns it just before Clark and Henry leave, giving them a chance to peruse the tome. And it turns out that the symptoms of the original plague and the symptoms of the new plague are indeed the same. Meanwhile, in a sedan, the old man who had been looking at the book slides off a rubber mask to reveal himself as the ultra-humanite. Ultra is concerned that Travers is showing a little too much interest in the plague book, and they must do something about that. And Travers, in the meantime, has been able to isolate the plague germ, which is the first step to concocting an antidote. So Travers works and works tirelessly until he finally manages to make a compound that will work and stop this horrible affliction. As Travers dials Clark up to give him the good news, the ultra-humanite sends a couple of his goons in, and whack, they whack Travers right over the head. Having hearing a, heard a struggle on the phone, Clark changes into the familiar blue tights of Superman and speeds to Travers' apartment, where he happens on the kidnapping in progress. Superman is shot at, and more goons come from out of nowhere to slow him down, as the first two minions of ultra-humanite shuffle Travers into their car and take off with Superman in pursuit. And they take Travers to a bluff high above the city and throw him off. But Superman dives after Travers and saves him by slowing their descent against the side of the bluff with his foot. Superman doesn't waste much time with words, taking Travers right back to the location he was just kidnapped from and leaving him there to work. <laughs> and the ultra-humanite is very unhappy to hear about Superman's interference and vows that no freak of nature will keep him from blotting out the human race in order to create his own race. Superman gets back to his apartment and gets a call from Travers, who tells Clark Kent about the terrifying kidnapping 
and that he is going to demonstrate his antidote for scientific a scientific society the next day. The demonstration ends up doing absolutely nothing, and Travers is laughed out of the building and shamed into leaving the society. Superman catches up with Travers later that evening to give him a little encouragement and finds the scientists smashing all of his equipment. Also, Superman roughs up the scientists, <laughs> shaking him in the air before giving him a pep talk about how Louis Pasteur and other great scientists continue to persevere in light of being mocked. So Travers is brought back to his senses and regrets that he destroyed his chemicals. Well, Superman says he can take care of that and goes and gets the chemicals for him, breaking into a lab, evading a security guard, and then coming back to hand Travers the chemicals saying, never mind how I got them. <laughs> as Superman as Superman is leaping from Travers' lab, he is hit by a beam and rendered unconscious. He is handed over to the ultra-humanite who slaps a fancy miner's helmet on the Man of Steel and renders this, uh, hypnotizes Superman to make him susceptible to the will of the ultra-humanite. Ultra curses Superman into helping the villains spread the plague about the city by way of a giant airship. And just as Superman is about to throw some of the germ-laden tubes out over the city, he switches gears and slams the airship's controls, causing it, the airship to plummet to the ground with the entire crew aboard. Ultra realizes that Superman tricked him, pretending to be under the humanite's power, when in reality outsmarting the villain. The next morning, Clark is walking to work when he happens upon a young boy, lying in the street, stricken with the purple plague. And the general public avoids the boy like a, well, like the plague. Okay, <laughs> which Clark admonishes them for. And Clark rushes the boy to a doctor who confirms that it is the Purple Plague, as the boy's father begs for him them to save his son. The father, ironically, was apparently one of the members of Travers Scientific Society. You know, the same ones that called him a fraud and laughed him out of the building. So Clark calls Travers, who has found his mistake in the antidote. And Superman shows up to rush the child to Travers' lab, where the antidote is administered, and the boy's life is saved. And Travers gets his redemption with a society who now sees that he is not a fraud, but has saved many, many lives. And the ultra-humanite gets his as well at the end, because Superman returns to the stronghold to face down the scoundrel, only to find that his job gets done for him when the ultra-humanite's gun backfires on the villain and kills him. And that wraps us up with a small panel of uh, World's, New York World's Fair comics, which would eventually become New World's Finest comics, actually. All right, so... Um... The issue starts off with a uh, with a half page splash, and this one shows Superman carrying a boat overhead, which again has nothing to do with the story, which is kind of weird. And the uh, the introduction was used back in Action Comics number ten, as well as seventeen and eighteen. And I think though that this is the last time that it's used here in this issue. The sort of general, this is who Superman is, right? Yeah, I just I, I I kept looking back to think, does this boat ever come into the picture? Because right. I'm doing the synopsis, and no, it has nothing to do yeah, with it's, it. It's incredibly random. I mean, I guess we can assume the boat was in trouble uh, because there's people hanging over the side of it, and you know they're <laughs> freaking out and whatnot. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. So, and there is no shield on Superman's chest. Yeah, I wonder if it's that way in the archives. I don't have the ar- the archives for that one, but um, I'm looking at a scan of the original. And okay, there's, no, there's no S on it, so yeah. Um, I can look at the Chronicles volume. Sometimes they fix that stuff in the reprints, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, I know there were some things that were fixed in. Uh, I think it was 21. 
that John Wilson and I discovered were mm. different in the reprints. Mm. No, it's not there in the uh, Chronicles volume either. Okay, good. Mm. Is it weird that it bothers me when they, they change those? Oh, sometimes it bothers me. And, I mean, I, I like to see... You know, I'd rather see, I think, a, an accurate representation of what it was when it was originally printed. But I can understand why sometimes they try to correct it. Not sure. So, but anyway, this is the second uh, story in a row that we've covered on the show where Clark has been examined by a doctor. And actually, this story was published when the last storyline was running, because it was from the newspaper strips. Um, and Superman ripped open a skylight in the uh, in the villain attempted to hypnotize him in that last story too. So it's interesting how Siegel's repeating some of these ideas, but not in a way that f- feels like he's really telling the same story, because the two stories feel very different. Well, and we're still in the area where the learning curve is being set. Right. Nobody nobody knows exactly what to do with this character as of yet. Right. So yeah, you're going to go to the same well until you know you get a chance to look at it differently. Yeah, yeah, and that's because it's so early in not just Superman but the comics as a whole. That, that's why I I really can't be too hard on some of these things because, like you said, there's still a learning curve that they're getting over. So, but we see Clark talking about a a new ability or at least an extrapolation of old ones as he says that he has a super resistance to disease. I was going to ask about that. Has he started naming his ability <laughs> Super Moniker yet, or is this the first? I think they've said, like, super sensitive hearing in the narration. Okay. But I think this might be the first time we've seen Clark or Superman refer to something he does as super, you know, whatever. That's well, a milestone. Yeah. Eventually we'll have super ventri- ventriloquism. Uh, yeah. Coming pretty soon, actually. I, I was, yeah. <laughs> I've been looking through some of the stories that we're going to be getting to, like in the next year of the podcast, and I actually spotted a reference to super ventriloquism. So, uh, but um, that's when the magic happens. <laughs> so this disease has gotten so bad that they are wheeling wagons full of rotting corpses through the streets. Horse-drawn wagons. Horse-drawn in, wagons. In, yeah. In 1939. Right. I, that seems very archaic, but... <laughs> and uh, the next panel there... Now, I work at a newspaper, so whenever I see, uh, especially in these Superman stories, when I see references to newspapers or, or whatever, my mind kind of goes to how real it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And I see this headline that says, Hundreds Drop, which to me seems like a very tacky headline, you know, for that kind of thing. Yeah, you want to keep it very general, very right. succinct. An right. objective. Right. And just hundreds drop. It just... I was hoping maybe that continued down, but no, that's just hundreds drop. Right. You wouldn't even use drop dead in journalism. Well, I would hope not, yeah. 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 But um, then on page three, we see Clark Kent smoking a pipe, which I want to make note of. Um, every story that we've been through over on Legends, which I do with Legends of the Batman, which I do oh, with yes. Michael Kaiser... Every I'm familiar st- with the show. Okay. Every story we've been through, Bruce Wayne has been smoking a pipe. Well, that was the the norm then, right. that adult men smoked pipes. Ward Cleaver would be sitting down smoking a pipe. Right. You come home, you put your slippers on, and <laughs> light fire it up. Have a Chardonnay. and Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the Purple Plague is, I think, obviously a stand-in for the Black Plague. Yeah. I actually looked up... 
because I thought maybe it was a reference to something. It, it, purple plague is actually a term used for a certain kind of compound that forms, and I'm not the most scientific purpose person, but it forms when the inanim when with the inanimate contact of gold and aluminum, oh, more okay. or less semiconductor devices, and degrades them. It's sort of a almost a rust. Hmm. Was so that... it has nothing to do with bubonic plague. <laughs> is that a new term, like, you know, in the last 50 years or so, or was it around when they had I don't think that they would have been familiar with it. I think it would have – Radio Insiders at the time probably would have known it okay. to some extent, but, yeah, not a brand new term. I couldn't find anything that made me believe that this uh, Defavier, the, the author of the book that they're after, was a reference to a, a, a specific person. But they do name check Louis Pasteur later in the story, so Siegel might have had him in mind, or he might have read something that, you know, he pulled that name from. Yeah, I don't. I maybe. Yeah, I think he just pulled it. Well, it's kind of like creation of Lois Lane was from the girl down the street who Lois Amster, who you know, basically crapped on Siegel. Right. So he made her a real nice lady, <laughs> except not, and in the book. <laughs> But it's a it's a good thing that the ultra humanite didn't just you know steal this book from the library like a good supervillain would have done. I know it's it's just kind of cracks me up that I'm going to destroy humanity, but I'm going to make sure my library books are returned. <laughs> right. I don't want to find in the new society. Don't with those overdue book fees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but kind of a uh, underwhelming reveal of the ultra humanite in this issue. Previous I was going to say yeah that that he, mask is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. He just gets in the car with his nurse and takes his mask off, and that's a big reveal. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so then we move on to page four, and did you think that uh, the Ultrahumanites' thugs got to Travers's pretty fast? Yeah, I, well, the, I, a short distance away, so I think they were maybe a block away. Okay. I mean, they may have been close, but it just it's still... The thing about Travers that gets me is, instead of you know doing his scientific duty in researching this he goes to the media first right and brings clark kent along right i'm like wait you okay go ahead do what you got to do but <laughs> clearly your priorities may be a little bit off yeah unless he needed to tell clark to get the word out about but he hadn't really tested it yet so yeah yeah i see they what had, you're saying they, he had a, a random theory so right. he tracks down a journalist. right yeah the thugs got there pretty quick and just Looks like they hit him. Is that a? What do they hit him with? It, it's either like a blackjack or possibly a pipe or a wrench or something. It's really hard to tell in the artwork. Yeah. They don't kill him, so I, I would assume it's not a wrench. But smack somebody in the back of the head with a wrench, you're gonna kill him. But yeah, you're uh, probably gonna yeah. <laughs> and uh, we get a very underwhelming transformation scene with Clark just you know quietly untying his shoes on the bed. I just love that though, but that's that's kind of indicative of the era. Well, yeah, yeah, they haven't they haven't quite mastered the shirt rip yet. So <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think the shirt rip comes along until later, and then you have Byrne doing you know super speed changes in oh, a stairwell. Yeah. This is just well, I got to do what I got to do, and it's kind of it kind of grounds it a little bit in reality for as much as you can with a guy who leaps out the window and shoot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, can see through walls. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The next page is where I have a a question. Okay. Because Superman comes upon the uh, kidnapping, the two people who are kidnapping Travers. Right. Oh, there, there are three of them. Okay, that's where I got confused. No, because there are three walking out. They shoot at Superman, and suddenly there's three separate goons attacking him. Where did these extra muscle men come from? 
I'm not sure what you're asking. Uh, panel one, two, three, panel five. Okay, there's the guy in the brown suit. Okay, I guess he just flings him off there. At the at first read, it looked like there were extra muscle men in there, but it looks like it's still the same three. Oh yeah, there's looks like a guy in a brown suit, a green suit, and a like a gray suit or a white suit. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, but only two of them get in the car. It looks like. Yeah. I guess they just left the third guy back to be. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. See you later. Yeah. Uh, we. At the top of that page, though, we get a uh, a very nice shot of Superman leaping out of the building, and even though it's it's a very flight-like pose, even though he's still not flying at this point, and we've had a lot of those lately. Yeah, it seems like they wanted to fly even before uh, the you know the radio show and the Fleischer said, "Can right. we just make this easier on us?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, but it's, not, it's not like he spent 10 years waiting to fly, though. Right. And I don't know – I have read into the uh, early to mid-40s on the Golden Age Superman stuff, but I don't remember if there's ever a point where he just starts flying or if it just you know slowly keeps evolving from these uh, gigantic leaps and then suddenly he's flying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, in terms of the my my familiarity is more with the strips, and yeah, it just kind of seamlessly he leaps further and further, and finally like he's flying. Just let it let it go. <laughs> Don't ask questions. He's, he's going to the Daily Planet. He's leaping across the country. We we should probably just call that flight now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, for those, I, I've been kind of keeping track of Superman's costume development on the show, and the uh, the the shield on Superman's S this time has a red border where lately it's been consistently yellow. And there's no cape, or no S on the cape at all this story. And the one on his chest seems a bit larger, too, especially if you go back to the earliest stories that Siegel did, Siegel and Schuster did. But yeah, it's got, it gets progressively larger mm-hmm. and more defined as, as it oh, goes yeah, on. Right. This one's still, it's still a straight triangle rather than the, the, sh- the more shield-like. True. Yeah, the, the five-sided shield doesn't come into regular use until... Like forty, forty-two, some nineteen forty-two, somewhere in there. Are you a fan of the of the S on the cape, or is it? Yes. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in you know the the eighties when it was always there. The Christopher Reeve movies, it was there. Or the, the animation and everything. And and I realize it wasn't there at the beginning, but to me, it's just it's just a part of the costume. Yeah. And it it kind of bugs me that they're leaving it off a lot. I mean, on like uh, Superman Returns and all the animation, and I understand that it's difficult to animate, but with so much of the animation being done on computers these days, because don't they just? I think they just have like a basic uh, kind of a wire frame that they overlay the pattern on. So once you get the pattern on there, it shouldn't be that difficult. But yeah, and the more CGI related, but in right. terms of cell to cell, I can understand leaving that. Oh, off. the hand drawn stuff. Yeah, I can understand that, but. And in terms of Superman Returns, the color would have been off on that one because they use such a dark palette on that cape and boots, yeah. which is, no. you know, I'm not going to judge the movie. We're in a golden age era, so. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I do I do like the S. It doesn't, it's not one of those things I'm going to just, you know, harp on when it's not there in the modern stories, but, but I do like it on there. Better there than on the on the belt, I think. I agree, I agree. On page six, I like how they throw Travers off the cliff to distract Superman so they can make their getaway. 
it's a very vicious tactic, but a smart one from the criminal's point of view. And we really haven't seen the villains do that this, to this point. No, they've just been uh, pretty ignorant up to this point. Oh, <laughs> they yeah. just, yeah. oh, run. He's faster than you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't get very much smarter very quickly, but um, yeah. Plus, it gives us a really cool scene of Superman catching Travers, even though, again, with a non-flying Superman, he really couldn't do that. But, you know. I just realized he actually runs back up the cliff. Mm-hmm. Because he, he slows them down by grabbing the cliff and then flings them back up, which is a nice I, – I mean, obviously, they didn't – looking retroactively, it's a little bit different. It's almost a nice cop-out to get him back up there. Mm-hmm. Where in you know other eras it's just swoop and then I'll go chase down the the escaping villains. Right. I could do it all. I mean this power level is actually I like the limitations they put on him. Yeah. That you actually have to think about how to get him out. Right. Yeah. That's that is one bonus to having this uh, lower powered Superman is is that you kind of have to think about how to get him out of situations rather than just boom and it's done. This is an era that if Dan Didio called me up and said, I have carte blanche on action comics, I would do Earth 2 Superman, you know, and, and just kind of use this era because there's so much good stuff in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have right. the, the sort of, uh, not noir, what's the, the pulp, pulp background still. And just the visuals were still so good in that time period. It, mm-hmm. would, it would be a great era to just go back and recover just for fun. Definitely. I would love to see a... Like an animated series or even a big-budget live-action movie of Superman set in the early 40s. That was uh, that was one of my pitches. Um, was it? I did a bit of fan fiction where Superman actually took on the Ultra Humanite, and I actually tied the Ultra Humanite to Bill Dunn of Reign of the Superman. Oh, yeah? If you look at them, they're very, very similar. The Ultra Humanite never really gives out his origin. Right. Beyond to say a very basic – somebody gave me a formula. I'm like, oh, okay, so you're basically the same character. And here you're kind of following through on exactly what they were saying, you know, advance guard of an oncoming civilization. Mm-hmm. It just – it fit together, and that was – I would love to see this movie because I think it would look – I'm a big fan of the movie The Shadow from 1994. The oh, Alex uh-huh. version. That's a great movie. Yeah, primarily because it was true to the source material and the the backgrounds – all the sets were gorgeous, and right. I think this would make a perfect period piece because everybody's griping about how Superman doesn't fit up with the modern world. He's out of touch. Well, put him back where he belongs. Put him back in the thir- yeah, yeah, 30s or 40s. Really, there you that's go. how you feel about it. Anyway, I've, I've, detour- I've detracted. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but I, I, I did get a kick, uh, like you pointed out in your synopsis. He just uh, takes Travers and puts him right back where he got kidnapped from, which – yeah. <laughs> I understand he has work to do, but it doesn't seem very smart. Yeah, you would think at least he would watch over Travers a little bit. Yeah. Or check in with him now and then. The the Ultra Humanite, uh, his his, uh, plan has gone from seeking world domination to wanting to kill everyone so that he can father a new race, which, yeah. That's That's awkward. Yeah. I did like – go ahead. Where was the Nazi uprising at this point? Because I know it was present. Um, they had invaded Poland. That was in September. Okay. So it, we were, you know, World War II was right at the very beginning. Okay, but so everybody was, uh, at the time of the writing, they probably knew of the Nazis' vision to some extent. I would say so, yeah. Okay, that's what I was wondering, because that's pretty, that's pretty Hitler-like. Right. But at least the uh, the ultra humanites' means of going about this 
the Purple Plague are more apt to work than, you know, cab rackets and faulty subway <laughs> tunnels. We're, we're going to get him for taking over the world. So at least he's getting smarter, somewhat. His henchmen yeah. are still pretty stupid, but... And just to think, one of those henchmen would one day become Lex Luthor by <laughs> complete accident. But that's that's spoiling, because you haven't gotten to that yet. Right. A couple more uh, episodes, and I will. Um, the members of the, what was it, the Scientific Guild, or what was it called? Yeah, the, the Science Scientific, Scientific Society. Society for Tomorrow, yeah. They Or no, Scientific Society, yeah. They're really hard on Travers. Yeah, and... I also I kind of question Travers doing that publicly because um, wouldn't you do test it on a mouse or some other animal before going straight to humans? You would think so, yeah. But yeah, but that could have been a a time related issue too, because with if they've got rotting corpses in the streets, you know. But oh, true. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was just trying. He was trying to cure a disease that's leaving thousands of people dead. You know, it's not like he claimed to have some miracle drug and jipped people out of a bunch of money. He failed, but what have you done, you know? True. I don't see any of you working on this. Right, exactly. But we do get a nice little pep talk from Superman. um, Which includes throttling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but, you know, after he throws the guy around, yeah. But it it kind of uh, subtly speaks to readers, too which in this day were predominantly kids, which I kind of liked. You know, encouraging the kids to do things, even if people laugh at them, which I liked. Yeah, but maybe not convincing people by throttling them, maybe another good message. We'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Page 10. Did you notice there's like a noticeable shift in the art and the lettering? Yeah, the colors are almost completely different, completely different palette. Yeah. Uh, Superman's chin has gotten much more pronounced, right, and is much more toned. So I, that's why I wonder. I didn't think uh, Schuster did all this art. Um, I think I think at this point he was still doing at least general layouts on most of the stories, and then the the inker would come along and you know ink it and tighten it and, and do the actual uh, tightening kind of rendering up of and... tightening up. Yeah, but. I could be wrong because, you know, with the newspaper steer- newspaper serial and action comics and the Sunday stuff is coming along, too, here pretty soon. So there was a lot on their plate at this point. But yeah, and then we have Superman just busting into a chemical plant and stealing a bunch of chemicals. <sighs> and I'll I- defend it. I'll defend it to a certain point. I mean, in this era, Superman was here's point A, here's point B, whatever I have to do to get there to do the, you know, right. for the greater good, I'm going to do it. So and there are mitigating circumstances here. Yeah, because they they need they need to cure, cure this plague that's killing thousands of people. But still, mm. well, we're not dealing with an era where the public knows Superman and supports him. He's still a, a vigilante. He's very much not quite on par with Batman in terms of the creepiness, but he's still in that shadowy realm. Oh, definitely, yeah. And Batman actually becomes the public's hero long before Superman does. So, which is odd. Uh, yeah, from our modern sensibilities, yeah, very odd. <laughs> The uh, the cannon there at the bottom of page ten that just kind of comes out of nowhere. I was gonna say, what is that mounted on? <laughs> I have no idea. He he drops the chemicals back off at Travers's and then leaves, and then blam, he gets hit with a cannon. So, but no I guess I guess real if, explanation. <laughs> I guess if the 
Ultra Humanite was just, you know, down the block from Travers. Maybe he had it out the window or something. And Well, that, that would make sense, actually. Yeah. But you're right, they don't really explain it. And this makes the second time that Superman has been taken out by a huge electrical jolt. Though, this time he could have been faking, as we find out later, that he was. Yeah. But... And I don't and know what's with the what's with the miners cap. <laughs> I have no idea. I had I had, I called it the hypno helmet in my notes. <laughs> but we, we we see the the goons carrying Superman in, and then the next thing you know, Superman's on a table with the with the miners helmet on his head, and they don't really explain what it does or or anything. And it it can't no, be. And then it, it can't be intrinsic because he doesn't wear it. Right. Beyond that. Right. He just wears it for three panels, and then it's not there anymore. So, I don't know what's going on. I really did, though. I liked Superman's line in, let's see, it's panel one, two, three, four, five, seven. Next stop for this plane, Eternity. It's a very cool action hero line as he's punching the guy out. And then it crashes with everybody aboard. Well, yeah. Have you been Have you been keeping a kill count like you do over on Legends of Batman? I haven't. No. Okay. No. Well, um, I think well, John, Superman had always seemed... Oh, go ahead. I think John has been. Maybe. In the show. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I just... Well, with Superman, it always felt more like collateral damage. With yeah. Batman, it's like, I'm going to drop you off a rooftop. <laughs> right, right. Whoops, <Yep>. butterfingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both heroes at this stage in the game, they're they're very much, you know, okay, you're a bad guy and you die, I don't care. So that's just very different. Um uh, now, here's a question for you. If you went through with that idea you were talking about earlier, would you keep that sensibility? Uh, to an extent. To an extent, yeah. It would be more more unintentional because my theory is you can't save them all, and if Superman's got a choice between saving the innocent victim and the criminal, right. and you know, at this power level, he's going to go with the innocent victim. Right. So there, there would be collateral damage just by nature of the beast. Right, but like here, as he's you know, uh, he knocks the guy out and jumps out of the the air vessel as it crashes. If he had a, you know, I, I if I were writing it, he would grab the guy right. on the way out. That's about it. Okay, good. He wouldn't intentionally kill somebody, but he may have to make that choice. Right. And I, I'm a little. Uh, moving on to page twelve, I'm, I'm a little. I don't want to say annoyed, but. Clark balls these people out for letting this boy die, but yet at the beginning of the issue, they establish that anyone who came in contact with a victim of the plague caught the disease. Yeah, and except I, I, for Clark. Well, except for Clark, of course. And I understand where he's coming from, but it's kind of like, well, you know, they don't have a cure for this disease, so <laughs> what good what is you- exposing yourself going to do? I mean, I, I understand it's a little boy. But yeah, there's only so much you can do, and I don't think they had latex gloves at this point. They didn't have the systems we have now of dealing with hazardous materials and no. disease. Uh-uh. It was just, you know, good luck with that. So which which makes me ask: Is the doctor up the creek too? That Clark t- brings him to? Yes, <laughs> that's the purple plague. That was my next note. He, Clark, yeah. Clark picks up this boy and he exposes um, the doctor, the boy's father, a nurse, Travers, and who knows who else in between to this disease, so it's a good thing that Travers was able to cure the disease. <laughs> what if you got there and, oh, I was just making that up. I, I was just kidding. <laughs> right, yeah. 
I really am a fraud. Sorry. <laughs> um, Clark is missing his glasses in panel five, which I found to be interesting. Well, that well, he may be halfway in the change. Is the only thing I can think of. He knows if this this works, I'm going to jump out the window and get to him. Right. That could be. And that certainly does look like flight there on the next to last panel. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like the, the shots of Superman and earlier Clark carrying the small boy, though. He just looks so frail and so helpless, and I thought that was a nice image. Yeah. Well, they, they did really good at selling that, that you actually want to care for the boy and want to see the boy. Right. Where rest of, most of the dead bodies you've seen have been faceless and mm-hmm. out of sight for the most part. Well, the boy wasn't dead. Well, I know, but, but the, those were covered with the disease yeah, up to that point. Right. So you didn't necessarily have the emotional attachment you have for the boy. Right. And I'm not quite sure why Superman waited an entire day before confronting the ultra-humanite. The, the scene with the boy kind of seems wedged in there, and I think it might have flowed better to have Superman go after the ultra-humanite and then have the scene the next day where he finds the boy and Travers makes the cure. Yeah, did he just go home and get into his pajamas, smoke his pipe, and go to bed? Yeah, yeah. Well, that waiting, was a heck of a day. Waiting for more people to die, I guess. Yeah, the it's you have to put it in context that they were still trying to figure out this whole hero villain thing, and they really yeah. at this oh, point definitely. they had what they had. They have westerns, and uh, they didn't have anything that was like Superman except for you know straight sci-fi. Right. And this, you know, as Superman would become more straight sci-fi down the road, it was a different beast. But here they were trying to do a cross between. A little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of pulp, and then a little bit of mythic legend. And it's not you don't always get it right on the first time. It's right. it's kinda of like making macaroni and cheese. Sometimes you're gonna get some of the, you know, uncooked powder. <laughs> and the ultra humanite dies and he will never threaten anyone again. Probably never yeah, we'll never see and, that character until again. Until the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> sooner than you think. Yeah. But uh I thought this was a decent story, but it's not really not really my favorite. I really, really want to like the Ultra Humanite, and I like that Siegel is introducing, and I've said this before, that he's introducing more supervillain type characters that have the traps and the weaponry and the, the sci-fi uh, inventions. He just hasn't quite worked out what to do with them quite yet. Uh, the Ultra Humanite's plots have all been pretty small scale for what he wants to accomplish. The last two have been a little better, but still there's just, you know, he's still trying to work out the kinks in it. Yeah, but it's it's well on its way. I mean, Oh, definitely. Well on its way actually. Really, I mean, for being as formative in the period not just of superheroes but of comic book books in themselves versus the strips, this book definitely took the ball and ran at least halfway across the field on the first, you know, oh. first few tries. Right. So. And it's a bit disappointing that the Ultra Humanite ultimately defeated himself <laughs> with the cannon backfiring. But um, but funny at the same time. Oh, definitely. And on the other hand, I, I like it. A little bit of me likes it because Superman, to this point, never really has beaten this guy. Uh, Siegel really wants him to be a definite threat for Superman, and he's trying to get there, You know, even if it's not quite firing on all cylinders yet. So well, It's a nice proto version of what we'll see later as Superman's nemesis. Right. Definitely. And this story, known as Superman and the Purple Plague later on, was reprinted in the Action Comics Archives Volume 1 hardcover and the Superman Chronicles Volume 2 trade paperback. So now it hasn't been reprinted that many times. No, nope. A lot of these old Golden Age stories were just 
reprinted in the the archives in the chronicles. Uh, several of the earlier ones were reprinted in Superman one, two, and three. Well, one and three. But yeah, they just didn't get a lot of reprints. And I think that's it's that way with most Golden Age stories, really. Uh, a few of the Batman stories got reprinted in Silver Age, but not very many. And really, you can't blame them for not reprinting too many of the Golden Age stories during later incarnations of the character, since he changed so much between yeah. 1939 and 1960. But um, Other features and ads in this issue, we had the normal strips of Pet Morgan, Chuck Dawson, Clip Carson... Tex Thompson, The Three Aces, and Zaytara. We also have full-page color ads for Superman number 3 and Flash Comics. The Superman ad says that it contains brand new episodes of the one and only Superman, but the entire magazine was reprints. I was going to say that there's nothing new in that. (laughs) And finally, we have our fifth Superman of America page. It starts out, as many of these have, with a special message from Superman himself. In the page from Action Comics number 18 that I covered back in episode 26, Superman talked about the first of the three ideals uh, that form the foundation of the club, which is strength. And this time out, he talks about the second of those ideals, courage. He says, Courage is the complete lack of fear in the face of overwhelming odds. Time and again, all of us, without exception, are called upon to fulfill a task or obligation that is apparently impossible. Those lacking the virtue of courage soon throw up their hands hopelessly and slink away in despair, admitting defeat. But those who have the spirit of courage instilled in their hearts never know defeat. Rather, they put their utmost into the task and do their very best to complete it. And who can ask more of a person than his or her very best? And he then goes on to give examples of people showing courage and encouraging kids to uh, do the same in their lives. And I kind of thought it was neat that, in some ways, this went along with Travers's plight in the last half of the story from this issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that was planned or not, but I liked that they went together. Well, I, I would assume those would be two different offices. There's the writing office, Probably. and there's more. This would go through editorial more. But yeah. I, I lo- I've always been a fan of the Superman of America codes, mm-hmm. and this one's using Code Mars. I haven't decoded it yet because my my decoder is on a I, I need to dig it back up out of a website <laughs> okay. but um, I actually did decode it oh and good and the message is foremost among the principles of the supermen of America is the sincere effort to promote peace and happiness among the nations of the world so there you nice. go nice other books from DC in October 1939 were more fun comics number 49 which had the beginning of the King Carter strip by Superman artist Paul Loretta. And Mart Bailey takes over for Joe Schuster on art duties on Radio Squad. We also had Detective Comics number 33, which revealed Batman's origin for the very first time. And Mart Bailey also takes over for Joe Schuster on Slam Bradley. And that feature is reduced to 10 pages. Uh, And with Mart Bailey taking over both Radio Squad and Slam Bradley, that makes Superman the only feature where Siegel and Schuster are still collaborating. We also had Adventure Comics number 44 with uh, Sandman battling a criminal known as The Face. And Mark Bailey takes over art duties on Federal Men, which is still being written by Jerry Siegel. Uh, That was drawn by Wayne Boring for the last two issues. And we also had all-American comics number nine which was an 
All-American book. Outside of DC, the probably the biggest book of the month was Blue Ribbon Comics number one from MLJ, which was a precursor to today's Archie Comics. So I thought that was a oh, that's really cool. Book. And then uh, Timely Comics had two books with Marvel Mystery Comics number two and Daring Mystery Comics number one. The latter of which had, if it wasn't his first work, it was some of Joe Simon's first work. It was uh, some of his earliest comic work. Definitely early, yeah, because we're yeah. still pre-Captain America. Oh, definitely, yeah. We're uh, we're a good Man, year that, and a half from Captain America. So That cover on Daring Mystery Comics is phenomenal. I have no idea what's going on in it, but it's phenomenal. You've got the guy in the yellow costume on the red rocket car with a sort of Lois Lane-looking woman, and then somebody has a flamethrower for oh, no reason. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just – it's eye-catching, and, and the, the trade dress is really nice. And just looking at it, I'm like, oh, wow. I'm looking it up now. Oh, yeah, that is a nice cover. Yeah. I don't know why. Mask. Yeah, I don't know if the print was better in that, but it, it seems crisper and clearer than what you normally see from this era. Hmm. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com Every legend has a beginning. Alright, so the next book we're going to look at is Superman number 3, which had a cover date of winter 1940, and this marks the first time that this book has had a date on the, the actual cover. It was released on November 15, 1939, for a price of 10 cents for the normal 64 pages of content. Our cover artist is Joe Schuster, and it shows Superman leaping over a moving train with a small boy in his arm, and it advertises the book's content as Amazing Adventures of the Greatest Man on Earth, Superman. I like this cover quite a bit. I think Superman looks really great, even though his hairline looks a bit receded. Yeah, but it's got uh, great action on it. Well, and the, and the kid actually looks. I'm glad he doesn't look scared. He looks amused that he's being leapt over this speedy train. Yeah, he's he's smiling actually. So, which admittedly I would be if Superman was grabbing me and carrying me through the air, I'd be like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, but an, an homage to this was done by John Bogdanov and uh, Dennis Janke on the cover of Superman: The Man of Steel number 81 from 1998. So track that down, or I will put a link to it in the show notes. Inside the book, it reprints two comic book stories and colorized versions of two storylines from the Daily Strips. 
And these are Superman and the Runaway, which was the seventh storyline from the dailies. I covered that back in episode 24, and it also uh, serves as the inspiration for this cover, because at the beginning of that story, Superman rescued a boy from being run over by a train. And at the top of the first page of that story, they've reprinted a cropped version of the Splash from Action Comics number 18. The second story in the book is The Big Scoop, or Superman and the Dam, from Action Comics number 5, which I covered way back in episode 5. And the next story is Superman's Phony Manager, from Action Comics number 6, which I covered in episode 6. And then we have Jewel Smugglers, which was the fourth storyline from the newspaper dailies, which I covered in episode 16. The, uh, the first page of the issue is another really great frontispiece that reads, Superman, America's greatest adventure strip character. And it shows a collage of scenes showing Superman leaping and diving and fighting. Unlike the frontispiece from Superman number two, though, with exception of the center image, these all look to be panels taken from previous stories, um, several of them from Action Comics number 17. Yeah, but it looks gorgeous, oh, and I love that they had these. Yeah, you know these moments to get you excited. Get, I mean, the cover itself was fine, but once you open it up and you see these different panels of the actual adventures and that mm-hmm. image right in the middle, man, it gets me going. I would love to have these reprinted as posters. Oh yes, definitely. They were reprinted in the archive editions, but not in the Chronicles volumes, which is disappointing because what I have is the Chronicles. So. Yeah, I always thought those two were odd. I mean, the the archives, they tried to do almost exactly what came from the book, but there would always be recolorings and such. Mm -hmm. But but the Chronicles, it seemed like they took a little bit more liberties. Yeah. And and the Chronicles were the ones that were purported to be issue by issue chronologically, and it just... Every Superman story in exact chronological order. That's what it says at the top of the thing. But as we've discovered with the Batman stories, they are not in chronological order, at least... You know, if you go by the information at, at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which until someone else comes up with better information, I'm I'm going to believe what he has. So I've oh, you know what? It's never steered me wrong. I, yeah. I'll I'll go toe to toe with anybody on that website. Yeah. And uh, we also have a page called Attaining Super Health: A Few Hints from Superman, where Superman encourages kids to exercise, stand up straight, and eat right. And there's an awesome image of Superman at the end of that too. Just a very barrel-chested, smiling Superman. We have Hi, kids. A... Eat your spinach. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have a full-page color ad for Action Comics. Here is the sensational comic strip character of the century. A powerful and thrilling figure, he will sweep you off your feet with his amazing and stupendous deeds of valor, strength, and adventure. And there's a couple of filler pages and two text stories, though none of these feature Superman, unfortunately. But we do have a two-page Superman of America ad. No special messages or secret codes, but it advertises a contest for Superman of America club members. And it says, quote, The greatest contest in comics magazine history with thousands of free prizes, including radios, flashlights, bikes, Superman of America rings, and more. And it promises additional information in the next issue of Action Comics. Oh, those rings would never be worth anything. Oh, wait. <laughs> right. Yes, they would. <laughs> yeah, I like how they uh, – well, we'll talk about it later. But they give away, you know, like flashlights and typewriters. And, and the, the rings was one of the 
lower tier prizes, <laughs> and now it's you know. What was worth. it? Thirty-eight thousand or more that they on Pawn Stars? The guy brought it oh, in. It was... I didn't see that episode, but yeah, I know they're worth yeah, five figures easy. Yeah. So. Um, but that was Superman number three. Um, did you have any further? No, not really. Just the these? just the the front piece was you know the main thing that kept, I kept going back to it. Just going, yeah. wow, those are cool. Yeah, I don't. I'm, know... I'm simple though. <laughs> I, I like simple things. <laughs> but um. Other books that were out in November 1939 were More Fun Comics number 50, and this cover and the Adventure Comics cover from this month were Fred Gardner's final covers for DC. I did a spotlight on him a couple episodes ago. We also had Detective Comics number 34 with the last non-Batman cover for a very long time, and the last Mark Bailey-drawn Bart Regan's spy strip, uh, Maurice Kashuba takes over next issue, with the strip still being written by Jerry Siegel, of course. And we had, like I said, Adventure Comics number 45. We also had All-American Comics number 10, with a Christmas-themed cover by Sheldon Mayer. And there was Double Action Comics number 2, which is kind of a peculiar book. There was no number 1, or even number 3, for that matter. And the contents are all black and white reprints from More Fun Comics number 28 and 29, with the cover being reprinted from Adventure Comics number 37. Uh, There's lots of questions surrounding why this was produced. Apparently there's a Double Action Comics ash can, but there never was an official number one. So I don't know if they put it out to try to secure, you know, the rights to the name, or... I've never even heard of this. This is actually kind of funny. Yeah, it's (laughs) just... It's the reverse of image. Somehow we have a number two, but no number one. (laughs) Right. But uh, we also had Flash Comics number one, which was the third All-American title and featured the first appearance of Jay Garrick the Flash, Carter Hull Hawkman, Johnny Thunder, and a Zorro knockoff called The Whip. And it's got a very iconic cover of Jay Garrick the Flash uh, outracing some bullets to save a damsel in distress. And although this is a very iconic cover, there wasn't a a redo or an homage to it until Impulse number 84 from 2002, which kind of blows me away that no one redid. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's shocking. Because that is a a phenomenal cover. I mean, you can when you think of Jay Garrick, that's one of the ones that pop into your head along with uh, you know him and Barry racing along the wall. Mm Mm-hmm. But that was it from DC. Outside of the company, we had Feature Comics number 27 which uh, had the first appearance of Daryl Dane, the Doll Man, created by Will Eisner, and was not only Quality's first true superhero, but the first superhero with shrinking powers, predating uh, the Atom and Giant Man from the Avengers. Yeah. Well, I guess at this time, I don't even know if if Roy had been introduced, but... is it right? Yeah, Roy, the original Al, Al Pratt. That's what I'm missing. No, I don't even huh. know if he had been introduced, but at the same time, no. he didn't shrink. He was just right, a little Spitfire. No, um, Al Pratt, the Adam. He was one of the last uh, of the original JSA members to be introduced. So we still got a long way to go on that yet. But we also had Marvel Mystery Comics number three, which was the first appearance of the American Ace created by Paul Loretta. And uh, we had a couple other notable events in November 1939, 
As I mentioned last episode, uh, November 5th was the debut of the Superman Sunday newspaper strip, and we'll talk more about that in episode 30. And uh, listener Steve J. Rogers sent me an email a few weeks ago reminding me that on Thanksgiving Day 1939, the Superman balloon debuted at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And that balloon measured 80 feet tall and was the sixth balloon added to the parade following Felix the Cat, a mom and dad and baby balloon, like a nuclear family, Mickey Mouse, the Marx Brothers, and Uncle Sam. And I'm not sure how many years that balloon was used, but in 1966, a second balloon was in, a second Superman balloon was introduced, making Superman the first character to get a, uh, a new version of his balloon. And then in 1982, they introduced a third version, this one measuring 104 feet long and 35 feet wide. And it was only used until 1987, but it's the biggest balloon to ever be in the parade and will likely remain so because following an accident in 1997, they put a ban on balloons bigger than 78 feet. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. (laughs) Superman is the only DC character to date to have a balloon in the Macy's Parade as well because there's never been a Batman balloon or a Wonder Woman balloon or... Green Lantern, I guess. Uh, at this point, with the DC, a lot of even the, I don't know if you call them second stringers, the lower tier beyond the Trinity, if, with Green Lantern now having a movie, I think you'll start seeing some of those become more mainstream. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, assuming the reboot doesn't kill it. <laughs> yeah, that, with that reboot, they're just kind of sucking a lot of momentum out of things. That Yeah. <laughs> what, what few things had momentum, they're, they're sucking the momentum right out of it. But. Rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Okay, so the final issue we're going to look at is Action Comics number 20, which was released sometime around December 1st, 1939, and sports a January 1940 cover date. It was the normal 10 cents and uh, 64 pages. Our cover was by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy. And Superman is on the cover again, of course. And it shows our hero ripping the giant steel door off of a safe, freeing a man who is trapped inside. And just in case you weren't sure if this was Superman or not, because his S is missing from his chest, there's a banner in the corner that reads, In this issue, the most outstanding comic strip of today, Superman. And there's also a note about the contest, which we talked about, and we'll talk about more in just a little bit. I think this is my least favorite of the three covers that we, of the three books that we looked at this ish, this episode. Yeah, there's nothing but, epic about it. There, I mean, the yeah. other two were just these really soaring, exactly what you would think from Superman, and this is, I mean, the background's washed out. Mm-hmm. You don't really know exactly what's going on. And his S is missing. Yeah, which. That's... 
on the cover is a big markdown for me. So yeah. But um, the Superman story inside the book was untitled at time of publication, of course, but was later called Superman and the Screen Siren and Superman in Hollywood. It was 13 pages, written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and edited by Vin Sullivan. And this is the last Superman story edited by Vin Sullivan. Uh, I gave a spotlight on him back in episode 21, and as I said there... He was dissatisfied with many of the things going on at the company at this time, so he quit and went on to pursue other comic book-related endeavors. Our story begins with Superman holding up a suspended trestle that is on the verge of collapsing so that a train can pass by. With the train safely on its way, Superman switches back to Clark and heads to the Daily Star to write up the story. After he turns in the scoop, he asks his boss about a vacation promised to him, Taylor agrees, but says that it would have to be a working vacation, and sends Clark to Hollywood to dig up some some kind of movie news. Two days later, Clark arrives in Hollywood and takes a tour of the set where screen star Dolores Winters is filming a scene. While watching the scene, Clark's telescopic vision spots a man on a catwalk with a gun aimed right at Winters. Clark is able to knock the would-be killer off the walk before he can fire, and a very gracious Winters asks how she can repay him for saving her life. Clark asks for an interview, so Winters tells him to come to her home later that night. But when Clark shows up, he is told by the butler, and eventually Winters herself, that she has absolutely no interest whatsoever in seeing anyone, least of all him. All of which leaves Clark very confused. Even more so the next morning, when he sees a newsboy selling papers, crying the headline, Dolores Winters to retire from screen. So that night, Winters is throwing a farewell party aboard her yacht. Partygoers ask why she's retiring, and Winters says that she's obtained her goal of making money, and now that she has enough, she's walking away. As the partygoers party, Winters slips away, giving the captain the order to hoist anchor and shove off. When the partygoers ask why they're heading out to sea, Winters and several men hold them at gunpoint. One man suggests that Winters is doing it to liven up the party, and Winters responds by shooting him dead in the face and telling the others to shut up or they'll get the same. The next day, word spreads of the boat's disappearance and that the boat's crew was fired beforehand. Aboard the boat, Winters broadcasts an announcement demanding $5 million in exchange for the passengers. With news that the location of the ransom drop-off point is to be delivered to the studio manager, Clark heads down there to try to get the information for himself. Clark is denied admittance, but changes to Superman and gets in Superman style by leaping over the fence and easily evading the guards. Superman scales the studio office building while the manager waits inside for word. He leaps into an adjoining room just as a piece of paper with instructions materializes strangely on the manager's desk. Using his x-ray vision, Superman is able to read the note which says, Place $5 million within Boy near the Centel Lighthouse at 12 o'clock midnight. Signed, Dolores. Just then, one of the guards enters the room, surprising Superman. But our hero climbs out the window and onto the roof, and then leaps off, leaving all of the guards picking their jaws up off the floor. That night, Superman waits at the Centel Lighthouse. Hearing an approaching motorboat, Superman dives into the water, waiting for the perfect time to act. Soon, the boat drops the boy in the water and leaves. Superman, still underwater, waits and waits and waits for nearly an hour, 
And just as Superman thinks the whole thing might be one big gag, a submarine shows up, shoots out a magnetic ray, and draws the boy inside. The sub then takes off, and Superman follows, easily keeping pace with the craft. Superman trails the sub for two hours, finally, finally following deep into an underwater cavern. As the lackeys lower the boy into the cavern, the captives tell Winters to let them go, but Winters simply replies that letting them go was never in the plan, and then explains how she is going to electrocute them all. But just as Winters is about to flip the switch, Superman makes a scene, tossing a stalagmite and shattering the switch to pieces. He then charges after Winters, but Winters grabs a torch from the wall, furiously slashing it towards her prisoners to keep Superman at bay. As Superman stares into Winters' burning, hate-filled eyes, he realizes that only one being could possess such evil, the Ultra-Humanite. Winters reveals that she is indeed Superman's most frequent foe, explaining that after her believed death last issue, assistants used adrenaline to temporarily revive his body, then, per instructions, transferred his mighty brain into Winters' young, vital body. Ultra then demands that Superman leave, or she will burn the captives, and Superman admits they seem to be at a stalemate. But then, Superman abrupt abruptly rears back, and using all the power in his mighty lungs, blows out the torch. Superman leaps at the ultra-humanite, but misses her as she jumps into the water. Superman follows, but finds no trace. The ultra-humanite has once more evaded capture. Back on the surface, the captives have overcome their guards, and since he is no longer needed, Superman leaves. Sometime later, Clark returns to Metropolis to kudos from his boss on the great story, leaving Clark to wonder to himself what the future holds for Superman and the ultra-humanite. The end. Luckily, he doesn't have to wait too long to figure out what that is. Right, right. Um, our story opens up a bit different this time. Instead of a kind of a generic description of Superman and the Splash... The text and the splash actually serve as the first panel of the story. And this is a method that Siegel's going to start using uh, from time to time from here on out. He'll still use the generic openings, but the story-specific ones will be used more frequently, eventually taking over entirely. Yeah, and that'll be more of a... It'll become a really big trope in the Silver Age, too. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a relief here, because... At least I didn't feel puzzled looking at that. Where does this why, fit in? What is that? Why he was carrying a boat? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really love Siegel's writing. Um, it's just so colorful. And this first page here is a good example of that. Um, in some ways, it's even more descriptive than the art itself. You know, you see, uh, it says, Shortly after Superman, savior of the helpless and oppressed, plummets down from the sky into the protecting darkness of an alley. And from there, donning civilian garments is transformed into the meek Daily Star ace reporter Clark Kent. I just, I just love that. Yeah, he really does have a way with words. He, he was a gifted person in terms of writing. Mm -hmm. And I really would have liked to have seen what he could have done with maybe a prose book or something like that. Have you read the two uh, prose stories from Superman number one and Superman number two? Not as of yet, no. You ought to track those down. Those are. Um, both of them are told kind of from the, uh, mostly from the villain's perspective, I guess, or from a, uh, perspective of a, just kind of a person standing by, where the, the stories here are more told from Superman's perspective. Yeah. So they're, they're really interesting kind of seeing the, the, uh, the outlook of a, just kind of an average Joe on Superman, but, uh, they're both, they're both pretty good. 
and Clark changing in the alley here. That's just so George Reeves. Yeah, this one, this one really is George Reeves style. And you know, I'll have more notes on that in a moment. Oh, well, go ahead. Well, just the fact that he's in the movie set, uh, he has to solve things oh, with, I you see. know, with his his cunning there. Yeah. Because George Reeves Clark was not Kirk Allen's Clark. No. No. I mean, there wasn't a big deviation between the two. Uh, you know, George Reeves Clark was a manly man, and here you actually see more of that bolder, less wimpy version. Right. Yeah, we – he – at this era in the Golden Age, they do the the meek and mild stuff, but – and we do see Clark, you know, cowering in front of bullies and stuff, but it's not – that's how he always acts. Yeah, it's not yeah. prominent. Prominent. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. And I, I kind of like this – and even – I think it was Action Comics number 18, I believe. We saw Clark using his meek and mild shtick to actually get revenge on a, a guy that was bullying him because he pretended to trip and ended up clocking the guy in the jaw. <laughs> they were at this diner. But anyway. And this is the third vacation that Clark has taken uh, in the stories, in the last eight months of stories, really. Uh, we had New York World's Fair comics and Action Comics number 15 where he took vacations. So, I don't know. But do we, is, that, is that an actual time frame or is the time frame in, in flux? Uh, it's the last eight months of publication, I guess I should okay. say. Yeah, I don't – There's no, there's no real time frame as far as whether these stories all take place within a certain – like a year or, or whatever. They just didn't do that back in the Golden Age. Well, actually, yeah. isn't Ultra Humanite's pretty much the first occurrence of, you know, really any continuity between the stories. Mm-hmm. They've made other references to past stories. Oh, okay. Uh, the, uh, the Black Gold Oil Swindle. Uh, they referenced that in another story where Clark used the money he got from it to go after the pirate ship. Um, and there's been other little things. But, um, but yeah, there's there's just not a heavy... Not like today at all, or even, you know, from the 70s and 80s. There's, there's not that kind of heavy continuity from issue to issue. I think I would have liked more explanation of why this guy was trying to kill Dolores Winters. And I understand it's just a way to get... You know, for Clark to have a reason to save her, but it's kind of random that there's a yeah. oh, there's a guy on the catwalk trying to kill the movie star. So, and he, I think they could have thrown in a line of dialogue to say that he was an obsessed fan or that he was maybe well, something be, uh, begrudged boyfriend or something. But yeah, but it it all leaves Clark very confused, and he should be used used to crazy women by now. I think dealing with Lois every single day. I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you work it, next to bipolar Lois Lane. I think right, he'll be okay. Right. But it does amuse me that he says females are a puzzle, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is uh, which is sadly probably more um, Siegel speaking than Clark. But um, but I can I can relate. Females are very confusing. So there you go. Yes, they can be. Page four, we we see the uh, the party goers, you know, at the party, and I love the guy in the background that's balancing the hat on his nose. Yeah. So <laughs> I think by uh, he says the party goers grow more and more gay, and I think by gay, Siegel meant sauced. Yeah, they're so. drunkard up. Oh yeah, I I don't know what this guy in the foreground's doing. It's like he's polishing a a wine decanter or a. That's what I'm trying to see. I'm trying to get it enlarge it to see. That's yeah, something, some maybe some brass. Yeah, but the guy uh, with the with the hat on his nose—that's just hilarious. 
it's like sandwich guy from the the mine story and actually it's very random <laughs> nothing wrong with random <laughs> but Dolores here is pretty hardcore she just shoots this guy for asking questions oh, I get it this is the live of the party bam <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I won't but can you imagine if an actress today just you know announced her announced her retirement and then abducted an, an entire boat full of people like I don't know what's a Kate Bosworth that's a good yeah. Superman related reference for you <laughs> Kate just, Bosworth you yeah. know so yachted the high gear goes across the water we'd, we everybody would be on it yeah yeah I love this bit on page six I love this bit that he does where he just leaps into the building leaving everyone very confused and uh, that's something that Siegel has used over and over in the stories and I just never get tired of it see which one the um, oh, page the, six oh? <laughs> yeah, page six yeah when he uh, he tries to go in the right way but then when they won't let him in he just leaps over the fence you know with a, <laughs> with, a with a quip and it just leaves everyone very confused and then on the next uh, a few pages later too when he just leaps away from the guards I really wish that he did more quipping because these were funny. Oh yeah, yeah. Like like in Action Comics number one or Superman number one, where it was reprinted when he breaks down the door to the governor. He's like, "It was your idea." It was your idea, yeah, yeah. Siegel had a real uh, comedic side to him, and he he put some of it in the stories, and but I don't think he wanted Superman to be slapstick, and I no. don't think I don't think Superman should be slapstick. But but yeah, I do I do like it when he makes these uh, kind of smart remarks to people when they should clearly know better. Page seven, the bottom left panel. It's a very iconic looking Superman of him using his X-ray vision. Yes, it's actually the cover of a book called The Golden Age of DC Comics: 365 Days by Les Daniels, mm-hmm. Chip Kidd, and Jeff Spear. Which I actually, while you were doing, you know, I actually picked up. I've had this, and I picked it up off my shelf just to double check. And yeah, that's. One of my favorite panels, to be honest. And it's weird to see it in context because nothing's really happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. But we do – it is It is a nice um, shot of Superman using his X-ray vision. In Action Comics number 18, we had the first time where you actually saw uh, a representation of Superman's X-ray vision because it showed uh, – it showed Superman and then you saw him looking at the wall with kind of uh, energy from his eyes like this. And then you saw the wall with the figures that he was looking at overlaid on the wall. So that was very cool. And oh, that's here, cool. here you don't see the actual um, figures that are what he's looking at necessarily, like looking through a wall. But I do like the the uh, the energy that you see, you know. And there's actually not anything coming from his eyes, obviously. But it's just a. I like this panel. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm just not very good at explaining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, over on page nine, speaking of panels that I like, I like not only this panel of Superman very heroically standing by the lighthouse with the moon and the lighthouse in the background, but then the next panel where he's diving into the water in a very flight-like pose. They've definitely got the flight-like poses down, even though he's not flying yet, which I just think speaks volumes of towards why they just eventually went to full-on flight. I mean, yeah, at this point, he's, he's all but officially flying. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, look, we, we, we just let it happen at this point. Yeah. In, the, in the next to last panel, the uh, people are bringing the money out to the drop-off point, and they say, the girl's mad to demand such a fantastic sum, but what can we do? I don't know, not give it to her? Maybe? 
don't negotiate with terrorists, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then we have uh, two pages with very little dialogue, and it's pretty much all done with, we have like a page and a half, I guess, with very little dialogue. And the Golden Age stories are always very heavy with narration, but there's usually more dialogue, too, even if it's just Superman talking or thinking to himself. So I thought that was kind of odd. It kind of stuck out to me that they were just letting the narration but it works. tell the story. It works really well. Cause, oh, it, yeah, it yeah, works. You can yeah, see yeah, what's yeah. happening. It's definitely – I mean I would say that's an advancement to what would become the craft. Mm-hmm. Could be. In the, Because you're not getting all the heavy-handed – I'm explaining this, you know, not not the Chris Claremont style of, exp- yeah. of expos- exposition. Right. Not that I have anything against Chris Claremont, but we all know that his characters talked. That's how they explained what was happening. <laughs> um, it was like that in a lot of 80s comics, though. They would just have yeah. pages of nothing but exposition. You know, the, the burn issues of Superman there, they would have... Like the last page would be nothing but exposition, exposition explaining what happened. But... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything happens, and all of a sudden we have to explain it in the last page. Right, right. I did a little research on submarines. I was trying to figure out how fast they traveled back in this era, and it seems back in this time the top speed was around 20 knots, which is roughly 23 miles per hour. So it's hard to say how fast the sub was traveling during the two hours that Superman was trailing it, but I was trying to kind of get an idea of how how far they would have traveled. So, but, you know. Pass into hours, so I mean a couple of miles? Not very far, in all in all. Well, it says that they were... Um, no, no, I meant after they picked up the boy. Oh, okay. He starts, when he starts following it. He follows it for two hours. If, they, if it was going 20 miles an hour, that'd be about 40 miles. True, but I don't. Know, I just kind of like to, like back in one of the earliest issues, Siegel's way, way off on one of his. Uh, <laughs> he made a reference about a height of a building or something, and it was way, way off. So I kind of like to look at that and just see how, how realistic, the measurements are that he gives, you know how how authentic, you know. But and that's just me. Most of the time, it was that the one where the the building was. I, it was basically it would have been nosebleed level. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You wouldn't remember. have been able to breathe on the deck or something. It was in one of the first two issues. I want to think. I want. I want to say it was when he was in Washington D.C. I'm looking right now and I don't see it right off. But anyway, people can go back and listen to the old episodes if they want to know. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> um, and I, on page eleven, I love this patronizing woman. The uh, after Superman rips the, or throws the stalagmite through the switch, the ultra-humanite, or Winters, as we know her at this point in the story, is trying to flip the switch and saying, why won't you die? And the woman, who is the captive, or I guess it's the man, I guess, now that I look at it again, but he goes, because he broke the electrical connection. And it just comes off as very patronizing to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you, you moron. Aren't you supposed to be a scientific genius? Right, right, yeah. Apparently, connectivity wasn't on the scientific genius. <laughs> uh, but um, it's cool to see the ultra-humanite threatening the hostages just by, you know, grabbing the torch and slashing it towards them because it feels like a very desperate move. 
for the Ultra Humanite, who thus far has always had a plan or a trap set for Superman. So I liked that. Even though now that I look at it again, Superman's eyes look really kind of bug-eyed. A little bit, and then I like the fact that she swoops right towards the woman you were referring to. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you. The bug-eyed thing is a problem with the reprint. They've colored, uh, they've colored too much white on it, so he kind of looks like he's got big eyes like the Simpsons. (laughs) (laughs) He's just had a lot of Red Bull. Hey guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And on page twelve, I love this panel. The very first panel on the page, which which is just Winters' face. Yeah, I was going to comment on that, too. That is That expression is dead on. Yeah, and it reminds me of a silent movie or even the old black-and-white horror films where they would just, like, show a close-up of the face, and you can almost hear the cheesy organ string sting in the background. Unfortunately, it's miscolored in the original, and her hair is gray, but they have fixed it in the reprints. Oh, okay. I didn't and, take it as... I mean, I'm looking at it. I guess it is gray. I just figured it was trick of the light oh that could be that too i mean the the coloring technology at that point was right it was literally four colors that you had to mix it's not the digital palettes that we have today true true so you want to talk about the big elephant in the corner with the big revelation (laughs) which one the fact that uh, (laughs) that he looks at her only the person only the only person that evil could be ultra oh well there's that too yeah but no, the uh, the whole transgendered body swapping. Uh, it, for some reason here, it doesn't bother me that much. It does make me think of Ace Ventura. Well, the crying game oh. via Ace Ventura. Yeah. <laughs> Finkel, I'm, Einhorn. I'm a bit confused why the Ultra Humanite would specifically choose her. Because I think kidnapping a less famous person would be a little smarter if you're trying to stay under the radar. And also, why choose a woman? I mean, okay, maybe people wouldn't suspect the Ultra Humanite to be a woman, but still, you're not a woman, you know? Well, I mean, if, if I was going to transfer of, my brain into another body, I would probably pick a man. Well, yeah, but how do we know that the Humanite that we knew was his original form? Maybe he was a woman to begin with, which is even creepier. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I had never thought of it that way. Because, I mean, there's no real origin given. I mean, right. you can play with that background, which, I mean, to, to whatever extent you're comfortable with. <laughs> but then the question is, why did he transfer? Why did she become a man to begin with? Yeah, I know. That's why. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And I, and I kind of wonder, I, I, I should probably say, I love this idea or this development. I mean, it's just so goofy and something that only comic books could pull off. But I also wonder how Siegel came up with it. I'm sure there were brain-swapping stories before this point in pulps and sci-fi novels, but were there transgendered body swaps in the 30s? I would say that's a pretty... that was pretty unheard of at this point in time. It's pretty progressive. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if there's an instance in a B-movie or a pulp novel of a transgendered body swap, I would really like to know. I can't um, think of any at all. I'm I'm not as familiar with the pulps as I should be, and there's just so many you know littler things that people like Siegel would have been aware of that aren't even available to us now. But um, but yeah, like I said, I I love it. It's just so it's just so goofy, and you couldn't do this in a movie or in a TV show. I mean, it, you would get laughed off the screen if you tried. Yeah. It. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just. 
even even in comics today, I think if you tried it, you would probably get laughed off the page. But but back in this era, it's just so so wonderful. I, it feels really Grant Morrison like. Is what's scary. Oh, can you imagine if Grant Morrison tried to write the Ultra Humanite? <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would. I'd buy it then. I would actually buy the book. <laughs> Plus, it gives Superman a female villain, which you know, had the Ultra Humanite stuck around, would have been. I mean, spoiler alert, he, he, she, it, whatever. We get one more story in the Golden Age of the Ultra Humanite after this, and then we don't see the character anymore. But, you know... Eventually, it becomes a gorilla. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think they've covered those stories on Tales of the JSA, haven't they? Maybe. Michael Bailey and Scott Garner. <laughs> but, um, I'll have to go that back is, and... This is just one of the most mixed-up characters ever. Mm-hmm. Hawkman has nothing on the Ultra Humanite. <laughs> Not until Hawkman comes and becomes a giant albino gorilla. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like I was saying, it, it it would also have given Superman a female villain, which he really hasn't had to this point. I mean, there was a female character that uh, was kind of a morally gray character a few stories ago, but uh, to this point, most of his villains have been male, though that's not entirely the... And even, even even today, most of his villains are male. But that's not necessarily entirely the writer's fault, I don't think. No. Uh, that was that was a victim of the time. Right. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, in terms of physicality, you want to see Superman punch somebody, but it's not necessarily a comfortable thing to watch him punching a girl. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You can't yeah. entirely <laughs> hold the writers accountable for that. Yeah. But. Especially after in the first issue, he beat up a wife beater. That would right. kind of, that would be right. ironic. Yeah. Uh, but then we get the very first use of Super Breath, which I just got a big kick out of. But not Freeze Breath yet. No. No. We haven't gotten Freeze Breath, and we haven't gotten uh, Heat Vision. But I think, for the most part, all of uh, Superman's other powers are there. Well, flight, of course. But we've seen the invulnerability, we've seen X-ray and telescopic vision, uh, super hearing. No super ventriloquism yet. But that's coming. Wait for it. Wait for it. But yeah, I really, I kind of dig this panel too. It's very, um, they're really showing off the super breath as he's blowing, and you see the big gale of wind hitting Ultra right in the face. It's a really good effect. Yeah, the coloring actually hit it just right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Except his cape disappears, but that happens. Yeah, it comes and goes in these holders. <laughs> the cape comes and goes. The shields come and go. So the pants or the trunks turn yellow sometimes. But like on the next page yes as he's uh, <laughs> diving into the water yeah uh, but speaking of which the prisoners <laughs> the prisoners overcome the guards just in a matter of what could only be minutes I would think because Superman dives in the water sees the ultra's not there and then comes back up and it's like if it was that easy to overcome the guards why didn't you do that earlier I, I think yeah. what, it kind of feels like Siegel ran out of room to have a big scene where Superman saves these people. So, oh, well, let's just have them free themselves while Superman is underwater. But <laughs> It's all resolved off panel. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it, kids. And in, in the next to last panel, as Superman is leaving, one of the uh, 
I, I presume it's a studio executive or something, he says, wait, I'll give you a fortune if you star in movies. And Superman's reply is, sorry, not interested. In Detective Comics number 40, there was a similar scene with, um, it was the first appearance of Clayface, actually, that at the end, there was a guy that offered Batman and Robin a movie deal. But Batman's reply was so much better because he said, he said that he said their career is a constant battle against crime and evil, which was which was much more, a little bit more stoic and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it, it it's just kind of eh. Sorry, not interested. Got to go. But, but um, and then he leaves everybody in this deep underground cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we presume that they can get out via the submarine, but who knows if any of them have knowledge to pilot a submarine so but yeah that's why I say I think maybe possibly he just ran out of room at the end of the story and just had to kind of rush it through but um and I'm, I'm curious in Clark's story for the Daily Planet or the excuse me the Daily Star do you think he explained the whole body swapping thing or did he just say that it was winters and be done with it I, I would just leave it at winters if I were writing it just uh <laughs> Just to save the phone calls. Right, right. Because he can't really prove it. And Winters is, well, I guess she'd be sullying her her name. But if uh, Ultra Human is still masquerading as Winters, then people are going to think it's her anyway. So, But um, I really <laughs> like this story. I think it's the best Ultra Humanite story, or at least the most logical, that we've seen so far. There's a nice little mystery running through it about why Winters has suddenly gone crazy and is abducting people. And we... Uh, I like the body swapping thing, even though I will concede that it's very goofy. It, it works. A, it, it works here. Oh yeah, it works. Yeah, but um, and it is a bit convenient that Clark ends up at the very studio, encountering the exact person that the Ultra Humanite became. But you know, it's the golden age, so you have to allow for some of that. So, um, did you have any more overall thoughts on? Uh, no, it was pretty much straightforward. It really was. It really was a good Ultra Humanite story. I mean, the the Purple Plague, it seemed like a better scheme. It just played out oddly. And here it's a little bit more you actually think that he, she, he, she, it could have actually pulled this one off. Right. Instead of stealing the library, you know, the book from the library. <laughs> right. Um, well, really, though, why did she kidnap the entire boat full of people? Well, these are all rich people. Maybe they, they have money. I guess she wanted the ransom money. Yep. Okay, I can I can buy that. Which kind of explains why she was Dolores, because she was in a position of you know these people trust Dolores Winters, not realizing that it's not her. Hmm. Okay, that's a good she point. Can, she can entice them and get them out there and rip them off, and with that money, turn around and make more airships or. Okay. Very good. Ele- electric cannons. Okay, I buy that. All right. Um, this story has been reprinted only twice. Uh, like the last one, it was in Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 2. Other features are, again, the normal normal things. We've got Pet Morgan, Chuck Dawson, Clip Carson, Tex Thompson, the Three Aces, and Zaytara. And we've got a full-page black-and-white ad for Superman number 3, which we just looked at. And finally, we've got the fabulous... Uh, two-page ad for the Superman of America contest. It says, Here it is, the greatest contest in comic book history. Over 2,000 wonderful free prizes. And the contest is open to all Superman of America club members. 
to enter all you have to do is write in a hundred words or less what I would do if I had the powers of Superman then send it in and they will pick the winner judging on the basis of individuality and neatness and let me pull up the page here and I will talk about See? the prizes neatness, neatness counts right prizes we've got three first prize awards which are standard portable typewriters complete with cases the second prize which there's five of you get a streamlined bicycle the third prize which there's ten of you get uh, radios for the fourth prize which there's a hundred you get sweatshirts with the Superman emblem on the front and the fifth prize there's two hundred and eighty-eight possibly maybe just two hundred it, 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 yeah mine's kind of sketchy too that's weird. Uh, you have footballs, basketballs, boxing gloves, indoor basketballs, excuse me, indoor baseballs, jigsaws, field gloves, pen knives, flashlights, pen and pencil sets, skates, games, and hunting knives. Okay, they're giving knives to Kit. That's great. Nice, nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, but the sixth prize, and there's 1,600 of these, are beautiful, gold-finished, adjustable-sized Superman rings for the best 1,600 letters. So the lowest tier prize is the thing that ended up being ultimately the most valuable. Yeah, the radios, I assume, wasn't they weren't monogrammed. I mean, none of this stuff was Superman-centric. Just the sweatshirts, and, yeah. Yeah, sweatshirts and the rings. I'm sure sweatshirts, I don't know how much those would go for today, but those rings are worth a lot. Yeah. As much as I'd love to own one, I know I wouldn't, at least not an original. Unfortunately, listeners, the contest, the deadline is January 28, 1940. So unless you can get your time machine working and go back, you are out of luck for entering. Doc Brown might be able to get you in, but... (laughs) (laughs) Right. So what would you do if you had the powers of Superman in 100 words or less? In 100 words or less? uh, Buy more Superman comics. There you go. There you go. Kidnap a boat full of rich people and buy more Superman comics. With <laughs> Pretty Rams. much. There you go. I'd love to say I'd do something really great, and no, not really. It, I'm just, I'm just going to be honest. What about you? Uh, buy more Superman comics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't kidnap rich people, but I would probably go dig up a bun- bunch of gold or something, and or a diamond or something. Yeah. Pay off the house, pay off the car, and buy more Superman comics with the rest. So. Yep. Um. There were actually two issues of Action Comics out in December 1939, since there wasn't one in November. So I will cover the other books that were out in December when I cover that second issue, which will probably be in episode 31. July 1963. The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning. First came the rise of the Fantastic Four. Then came the Incredible Hulk, followed by the Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor. But the Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all? The X-Men... On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or you can listen to Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. 
It's the Merry Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, the Angel, the Beast, Iceman, and their mentor, Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weider and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto, stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, marvel at the mystery of the Vanisher, and cower at the sight of the Submariner. All for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the Children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com. Thank you very much, David, for coming on. Oh, I appreciate you having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell the folks we – didn't, we didn't actually talk about your other two podcasts at the beginning of the show. So why don't you tell the folks about those and where they can find all three of your shows and anything else you've got online. Um, yeah, there's uh, – I do Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, which we go issue by issue through the, the history of the X-Men. And I do that with other Superman podcasters, Michael Bailey and John M. Wilson. And you can find that at xavierspodcast.com, of course, on iTunes. And then with my friends John Oliver and Travis Pyle, I do Walking Dorks, where I'm kind of behind the scenes at the moment because I'm developing something. But uh, we basically talk about comic books in general, and I'll be coming back full-time really, really soon on that one as soon as I announce my upcoming other project. And your Superman show is... Oh, it's at supermanforever.com. You can always find it there and, of course, on iTunes or at the Superman Podcast Network. Okay. And I'll put links to all three of these uh, on the site so that's easier. Just click over on those. Yeah. Next episode, I will be again by myself, and I'll be looking at the ninth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. If you have comments or feedback, feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Also, stop by the website at greatcrypton.com, where you'll find show notes for this and all episodes, as well as, like I said, links to David's shows and other postings from time to time. You'll also find the show on Facebook. There's an RSS feed and the iTunes link. And the Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which, thanks to David, can be found at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And that is home to many great Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. And be sure to check out my other podcast, Legends of the Batman, where Michael Kaiser and I are going through all of the Dark Knight's adventures. And you can find that at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again, David, for coming on. And thank you for having me again. And thank you for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
Michael Bradley. This is Lord Darkside. I am to understand that one J. David Weeter of Superman Forever Radio was recently on your show to talk about Action Comics number 19. It seems that you would be perplexed about a picture of a boat. Well, if you had called me and asked me to be on the show, I could have explained the boat. Then you would have known the truth. Why nylon stockings went on sale for the first time right before this issue came out. Did you know Albert Einstein urged FDR to build the atomic bomb just two weeks earlier? No. But you would have if you had invited me on. But no, no, Darkseid's phone isn't ringing, Michael Bradley. And now, now you will never know why one man is hanging over the side of the boat. Did you know that his name is Irving? I did. Next time you want to have a guest on, dial up Darkseid, and I'll teach you things. I'm on a boat. I'm on a boat. Everybody take a good look at me, because I'm sailing on a boat.